Audi. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast, sponsored by WeCure. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Just so you know, WeCure arranged for people to have medical and aesthetic treatments abroad in a beautiful and internationally acclaimed clinic in Turkey. And we have a special offer for anyone who visits the Big Travel Podcast page on their website. The offer means that if you book anything with them, you can take a friend with you absolutely free with all expenses paid for them. So you get a little holiday with someone you like, as well as getting your teeth or your hair or whatever else you need done go to wecure.co.uk slash big travel podcast and please spread the word that's wecure.co.uk slash big travel podcast well i've had a busy time this week with the news of the uk putting anyone coming in or back from spain to the uk into quarantine first they said it was 14 days now they've said it was 10 days but the news was changing all the time it was changing Per every half hour at one point. I was on the Foreign Office website. I was on 15 different radio stations. I was on BBC Breakfast News on the television and uh, Channel 5 News as well. And it's been a little bit crazy. I have to say, I am here in Spain and, it, you know, it feels absolutely fine. They say there's been spikes, but Spain is a big country. There's 45 odd million people here. It's very big. And the spike has been in, in places that are far away from here, the Costa del Sol and the Costa Brava. And here's where the tourists are likely to be. And you know I'm not a scientist I'm a travel journalist but I do think that it's just too much it's too much we shouldn't have put the whole country onto quarantine you know it should be more localized than that but what do I know I'm a travel journalist not a scientist so you know I I, I really hope that the most important thing that everyone is that everyone is safe and healthy and that goes with not getting corona and also keeping the economy open and and that sort of thing and making sure people can healthily and safely visit loved ones and travel if that's what you want to do. So on to today's guest, shall we? After an influential secondary school teacher took him to communist Russia, Ian Dale was hooked on travel. He's since lived in Germany, had to run away from a Hungarian prostitute. He's been guarded at gunpoint in Beirut, done things he doesn't feel he can tell us in a Miami hotel, and feels that Washington DC is almost an ancestral home. With conversations about this and his brilliant new book about angry tweeters, the decline of social discourse, and why can't we all get along? It's El LBC presenter, author, political commentator, panellist and much more, Ian Dale. Why don't you start off by telling me about your new book? The new book is called Why Can't We 
get along, shout less, listen more. And it's all about the decline of public discourse, whether it's on social media, in political debate, uh, just in normal society, looking at why it's happened and what can be done about it. And I I, I guess I decided to write it because I've just got so frustrated with the way that people conduct themselves particularly on social media where you you have the slightest disagreement and someone calls calls you a twat and so your natural human reaction is to respond and say you effing twat and then it escalates from there and this is the sort of thing that normally wouldn't happen when people speak face to face and there are so many things that happen on social media that just wouldn't happen in normal conversation and it just leads to unnecessary aggression uh, and this is reflected in in the political debate. You go on TV programmes now like Question Time and people people just call each other liars to their faces, which would never have happened in the in the programme's heyday. So I look at lots of, of examples of this and I'll be quite honest, I've been as guilty as anyone indulging in this, but there comes a moment when you really do have to stop and think this far and no more. Do you think that it's actually reflecting how our personalities are in normal life because you have this cloak of anonymity when you're on the internet and people I feel might have become more free in the way of expressing their anger and now they're you know, that anger is translating into our face-to-face interactions. Well, I think it, it has stemmed from... I mean, anonymity is a really important contributor to it, but I think it's also stemmed from uh, the political various political crises that we found ourselves in over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, and people have got very frustrated with their politicians, so they, they feel that the way to hold them to account is to shout at them. Now, um, if you're a politician, that's obviously not a particularly nice place to be. And I think most politicians think they are in touch with public opinion because of the number of people they meet day to day in their constituencies but a lot of people think they've been lied to they think the mainstream media is lying to them and you've got these silos now echo chambers that people live in where um people will say oh, it's, it, when Nigel Farage left LBC people say oh well, I'm not going to listen to LBC anymore it's clearly a lefty station well hang on a minute Look at who the other presenters or some of the other presenters are as well. And people are starting to think, well, I'm not going to listen to people I don't agree with. Well, if you're in the um, field of debate, which I'm in most of the time, you need to understand people who think differently to you, who hold different views, because if you don't understand their point of view, how can you debate against them? That's, That's a basic of learning how to debate people, whereas... Most people now, it seems, particularly on social media, think the way to debate is to insult and shout. And it's making us very, as well as very angry, I think it's making people very anxious as well, because, you know, we had the whole, everyone feels very divided. We had the whole Brexit thing that made us all a bit anxious, no matter what side you were on and felt out. And now we've got the COVID thing and you've got people's, you know, the stay at home people, the people that are getting very angry. You've got the people that are going out and protesting and, you know, having their big parties and everything. Mm-hmm. And it, it just feels like the divisions are getting deeper and deeper and online on social media and, and being able to comment. And like you said, have that cloak anonymity is really making it 10 times worse. And you've also got the virtual disappearance of deference. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I don't want to forelog tucking society. But the internet has democratised everything, which I thought initially was a really good thing because it gave Mrs Miggins at 32 Acacia Avenue a voice. But unfortunately, that voice has been used to negative effects a lot of the time and in a very aggressive way. And it's I mean, I don't suffer from mental health conditions, but I'll tell you what, if I did... 
I, I don't think I would be on Twitter now because you can get so... It is addictive. You can get so obsessed by what people are saying about you, particularly if you have a bit of a public profile and you, you adopt positions that inevitably some people are going to find controversial. Twitter can be a very nasty place. There are often times when I, I tw- I'd go to tweet something and then I think to myself, do I really want the two days of absolute hell that I'm going to get if I tweet this? And it's it's becoming increasingly... Um, I mean, these occasions happen when it's just something almost completely normal. But you think, well, if I do that, I'm going to have all the sort of woke, politically correct, snowflakey brigade on my back. Do I really want that for the next two days? Because there are times when you actually literally can't look at your Twitter feed because it is just so full of personal abuse. And that's where the uh, the bubble it becomes so key, doesn't it, in a negative and a positive way? Because if you, I mean, you're a public figure, so you know you've got all sorts of people following you. But if you surround yourself with the bubble and you switch off the people who you don't believe in or who make you angry, because they do have that physical effect on people, they make them angry and you know, and, and like you said, affect mental health. But if you do switch that off, then you're in danger of you know everything around you being it's an opinion that is one you agree with, and then you don't yeah. really you know that's how we've got into the Trump mess I think is that people didn't see that was coming but the people who supported him absolutely saw that was coming well I think there are people like Owen Jones for example the left-wing commentator who I used to follow on Twitter um, have been very friendly with over the years but I know that if I ever mention him on Twitter whether I at him in it or whether I just write his name the absolute abuse he gets is awful now He brings it on himself to a large degree because of some of the things that he says. But nobody can justify um, a lot of the abuse that he gets. So um, I don't follow him on Twitter anymore um, for that reason. I just think, well, if if I ever go into a debate with him, it's going to be his supporters swarming down on me, my supporters swarming down on him. And the only two that lose out are him and me. So I, I just don't engage anymore, which is not how it should be. It's funny you should mention that because this is going down a bit of a rabbit hole and I'll get onto the travel in a minute. But I worry about <laughs> Owen Jones because he, he comes out with these such strong opinions. And most of the time, you know, I am a left-leaning person. Most of the time I'm, you know, okay with what he says. But I look at him and think, I worry about you, Owen. I kind of want to give you a cuddle, you know, because there is that much abuse out there. And he's still very brave and, you know, pushing ahead with his opinions regardless. And you have to think when once you when you're alone in your home and you're you're sitting there with all this online abuse you know think of say caroline flack for example you have to wonder what that does to a person you you need to be very yeah. um t- tough skinned for it don't you? you 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 absolutely do and most people aren't tough skinned however much they might like to think they are and um i used to sometimes just retweet insults from uh so-called ordinary people um just to sort of make them think again to make them think well should i've really done that wasn't that a bit over the top and often they would apologize however um what i found is that if i then slightly i mean retweet something or even quote tweet it saying something that might ridicule what they've said um i i have an army of people which i didn't really realize i had that then go into bat on my behalf without me actually asking them to but they just do so they swarm on this um sometimes perfectly innocent person and that can be a pretty traumatic experience if you're not used to it so i'm very careful now if, if i do that 
and this is how it should be like you and I are politically from different spectrums however when I listen to you on LBC I'm not shouting at the radio because you're not a shock jock if we're still using that term you're actually just having a decent debate about it and that that is really exactly how it should be yeah I mean debate is everything um, you just have to accept that there is another point of view. People are perfectly entitled to hold another point of view. And if you disagree with it, then argue with them. But it doesn't have to be done in a nasty way. And, that, and that's kind of the whole message of the book. And it's not a sort of Pollyanna book. I do address some quite controversial things in it. And it is as a bit of autobiography in it. I'm using examples that I've been involved in, some of which do not reflect well on me, it has to be said. But I, I hope it just maybe starts a proper debate about the future of our public discourse it's out at the beginning of August. Now, autobiography is very much what we're about in this, well, biography, I guess, rather than autobiography, although I do talk about, witter on about myself quite a lot as well, um, very much about with this podcast. And it's all about life stories through travel. I know you are a, a very well-travelled person. Not are you a very well, only a very well-travelled person, you're also a very well-organised person, as I can see from your political writings, but also that the fact that you're actually the most organised guest I've uh, ever had on. Oh, and really? you said, you, yeah, you absolutely, you said, you listened to the podcast and of you course. suggested a list of talking points i mean that's that's amazing a lot of people just rock up and go like who are you what are we talking about oh yeah i can wing that so i actually have instead of asking you random questions to actually you know try and draw out things i've, I've got a list of, of wonderful travel points it sounds like and i'm going to start with the first which takes us all the way back to 1969 i believe that was the first time that I ventured away from the shores. I was seven years old. Uh, we were staying at the Ivy Side Hotel in Westgate-on-Sea in Kent. And it was the only family, family holiday that we ever went on because my dad was a farmer. And the last thing any farmer does in the summer is go on holiday. And we had pigs and cows, so they all had to be looked after. So um, his brother-in-law came and did that. And bizarrely, thinking of my dad, how I grew to um, know what he was like as an adult, um, he said, well, let's go on a day trip to Boulogne in, on the north French coast. So off we travelled on a hovercraft, which obviously don't really exist anymore. That, that was an adventure. And the, the fact that I even remember it all tells you that it, it was a, a really memorable trip. It was only for the day. I remember sitting in a park and a French lady coming up to us and talking to us in English and wanted to know all about us. Um, and it was, I suppose, at that point that I thought, oh, I'd quite like to do a bit more of this. And although you describe me as well-travelled, I mean, I have been to a reasonable number of places, but I, I don't think I am that well-travelled. There are large parts of the world that I've never been to, would love to go to, but unfortunately, I'm married to someone who hates going on holiday, which kind of restricts my movement to an extent. What, what, what are his reasons for hating going on holiday? And can you just go without him? That would be my preferred well, option. <laughs> I, I actually like travelling on my own. And I, I have been away by myself. Um, before I met him, I would always go away by myself. But he always wants to come back early whenever we go away. We went to, on a 10-day trip to uh, Cape Cod. This was in 2001. And um, we came back three days early. In fact, we flew on one of the flights that three weeks later was um, involved in 9-11, which was quite, quite a thought. Um, I looked up the flight number uh, that we're on when it happened and we flew on the flight from Boston 
um, to was it New York or Washington? I can't remember. But well, uh, that's going to help with his love of not travelling. Well, exactly. Isn't it? <laughs> Do- doesn't doesn't like going on planes at the best of times. We went. We did. Um, we went on. It was it a week or two weeks to Crete about seven or eight years ago, and I quite enjoyed it. We had a sort of Aaron villa with its own little swimming pool. Um, but um, he's just a home person, just loves being at home and thinks, well, we've got a, we've got a holiday home in Norfolk. Why would we go anywhere else? The, the, the home people have really been winning in the COVID times, haven't they? They really have. And, you know, I'm the sort of person who closes the door on the house and the mess and just gets out as often as possible, hopefully abroad. But if not, to like a near just town. Just as well or with your job. The, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> across the other side of London. I mean, I'm desperate to get out of the borough right now, let alone, you know, anywhere, you know, Australia or anything. But the home people have really won in this situation, yeah. haven't they? They've been totally unaffected in many ways. Absolutely. And I've enjoyed it, actually. I haven't been out of my house for more than 100 days now. In fact, I think it's about 110 because I'm a type 2 diabetic. So I've been shielding. And I thought I wouldn't like it at all. But it's given me the opportunity to do a lot of things around the house that I haven't done for years, apart from tidying up, obviously. And yeah, it's not been bad. But I, I do... I mean, if I lived in central London in a studio flat, I think I would have been driven mad by now. I know people that have been at home with children in flats and it sounds hideous and I've been so grateful for the garden, but you, you actually haven't been out the house for a hundred days. Have you been, have you been to the shop or anything like that? I've been to the corner shop about 400 yards away to take Hermes parcels. Um, cause I started a little sideline selling political mugs. Have <laughs> which you? has proved to be rather popular. So I what do they say these mugs? Oh, there's a, um, a Boris Johnson mug, Get Breakfast Done. Ha, ha, ha. Um, I see what you did there. Yeah, exa- exactly. Jeremy Corbyn, For the Many, Not the Brew. Um, so like all it. sorts of things like that. Margaret Thatcher mugs, Lady Tea, get it? Um, and they they've sold rather better than I thought they would. So I've been, and I, I pack them all myself. <laughs> So it's been quite therapeutic in some ways. But so I take them up to the Hermes shop uh, maybe a couple of times a week. But that is literally uh, the only place that I've been over the last, uh, well, ever since the 17th of March. You're going to be so, it's going to be so weird when you actually get out there again. You're either going to be like a little bit scared or going to be like a convent school girl released, you know, when they're 18 to like the real world. I've always wanted to be a convent school girl. (laughs) Um, I think you're right. I think that the first day... When I have to go into London, um, into Leicester Square to LBC, and I step on that train at Tunbridge Station, I think I'm going to feel quite nervous. And I'm not an anxious person, but I think it is going to feel very weird. And obviously, you have to wear a face mask, which I've never worn before. Um, And I mean, there there is part of me that does want to go back, but I'm not going to go back until the beginning of August um, when shielding officially stops. And and if there are lots of... Who knows what's happening then? Well, exactly. If there are lots of spikes after then, then I may not do that. Um, Funny you should mention the mugs. They sound great, but I was going to... uh tell you i'm actually drinking out of my talk sport mug here i'm sorry (laughs) but i used i was their first ever female presenter and used to co-present the late night show with ian collins and um, did you yeah so i've got this talk sport mug that i stole from they didn't even give me one of them i stole it oh really oh he's lovely ian well actually we we used to fall out a lot politically i think that's probably why he got yeah that's (laughs) that's not not a great surprise i think i need to send you one of my keep calm and listen to ian dale mugs you do, you absolutely do, <laughs> definitely. So back to the travel. Yep. Your first, well, I don't know if it was your first school trip, but as I have your handy list, you went to Moscow at, for, uh, 
uh, on a school trip. Is that right? I did. It was uh, Moscow and Leningrad, St. Petersburg, as it is now, obviously. Um, The head of languages at the school, David Lewis, who probably, of all my teachers, had more influence on me than any other. Um, He was a great organiser of school trips. And my memory is that this trip cost my parents £130, and it was a 10-day trip. And I took £14 in spending money, can you believe, and came back with seven. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And of course, it was the height of the power of the Soviet Union. It was an amazing trip. We started in Leningrad. And it was in April, so you had um, ice chunks flowing down the River Neva. We had uh, official Soviet guides who would obviously convince us that everything about the Soviet Union was better than anywhere else. And they had the biggest, the longest, the highest of everything. And I remember going to the Hermitage, the art museum and gallery, um, and they told us it would take, I think, seven, was it 70 days or 700 days to actually go round the whole thing? And I remember being really impressed by Leningrad. It, it, it was a really impressive city. And I suppose it was the first time that I'd been abroad to a major city. And then we had to take an overnight train to Moscow. And Moscow in those days was not the Moscow that it is now. If you go to Moscow nowadays, and I went back in about 2011, it's a bit like an American city, particularly when you drive from the airport. There were these huge advertising hoardings um, along the side of the freeway. And there was a part of me that thought, you know, I actually preferred it under communism. Um, but the centre of Moscow is is just beautiful, particularly, obviously, the Red Square, St Basil's Cathedral. And then we went in to see Lenin's um, corpse, which was a bit weird. And it was it was the most amazing experience for someone who was only 13. And well, you I took- was a particularly progressive school. That's quite a different trip, isn't it? It's not like, you know, a week in France as everyone else. No, it, well, I don't know about progressive. It was just I happened to ha- have lucked out in having David Lewis as the head of languages because if the teachers don't organise the trips, they don't happen. And I really feel sorry for kids nowadays because I'm not sure that a lot of them get those because we didn't have all the health and safety risk assessments, none of that in those days. And he then took me on two school exchanges to Germany because I'd started learning German, ended up um, doing my degree in German, partly as a result of these trips. And that, that kind of changed my life, gave me a completely different outlook on things. And I was terrible at German when I first started it, but I came back from this first school trip. It was a three-week exchange to a town called Bad Wildungen in Hessen in Germany. And um, I came top of the class in... Um, in in German and my teacher thought I must have cheated in the end of year exams and eventually worked out that I hadn't and I this has always stuck in my mind I said something in German to him in the middle of a class and he said why did you say it that way and I said I've got no clue thinking that he would then have a go at me and he said well that's brilliant because that's the first road to fluency when you don't know why you say something, but you say it right, you start becoming fluent. And I did become fluent in German. I spent a gap year there. I spent another year there um, as part of my degree. And Germans could not tell that I was English. I was that fluent. That's incredible. Do you think that first exposure to foreignness, because, you know, Russia at that point was particularly foreign. I mean, it is in a lot of parts now. And I know foreign is a you know, not the right word to me, but to, to use, but it's, you know, particularly different and other compared to someone who's coming from the UK at that time. Do you think that early exposure sort of influenced that, that flair for languages or you just happened to, to be good at them naturally? 
I'm not sure I did have a flair for languages. I had a flair for German, but I was totally useless at French. I mean, the, the only reason I started learning German was because you had to have a quota from each class in the year group to learn uh, German. I had terrible French teachers, but they had to nominate somebody. So I got nominated. I wasn't going to do it, but my grandmother, who was a huge influence on me in the, in the 1970s, she said, well, what have you got to lose? If you don't like it, you can stop doing it, but you never know what might come of it. And boy, was she right, because if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have studied German at the University of East Anglia I wouldn't have got involved in politics that was a real sort of one of those sliding doors moments where I, I made a choice and it, it's kind of guided my life ever since even though in my professional career I've never done a job which really utilised German I think it's one of those things that learning a language, though, because I accidentally learned a language because I moved to Spain at the age of seven. So I didn't plan to learn a language. We just, you know, luckily mm. it was a, a side effect of moving to Spain, although we were in an expat community. So not everyone learned it. But I, I think almost it's like and going back to politics a little bit, it's almost like when you go to university and I'm the first person in my family to go to university. So we weren't a university. Oh, that's good. We weren't a university family, you know. Um, but I think going to university and along with learning a language gives you something of um, an edge when it comes to critical thinking. And I'm not sure that that's taught anymore, you know, to talk to see the other side of the coin, you know, to debate the side that yeah. you don't agree with to to speak a language and go to somewhere where you, you know you're immersed in another culture and I, I don't know why I'm equating those two the language learning and the critical thinking but I think it is something about broad learning that, that helps you see that things from from different angles and that sort of ties in back to to what we were talking about in relation to your book um, you know be, being able to see other people's point of view am I making sense? Yeah I think that there is a point in that um, I was very careful in the university that I chose because I didn't want to study German literature um, I, I just couldn't stand all the, the critics of you, you read a book and then people say well what do you think that character meant by doing that and you have to come out with all these high-flown theories, which you don't really believe. You think, well, he did that because that's the character yeah. and that's, that's why he did it. Um, so I didn't want to do literature. I wanted to concentrate on the linguistic side. So I found a course at the UEA, uh, then known as the University of Easy Access, not so much now. <laughs> um, and and Because um, my life had been kind of mapped out for me. I was from a farming background um, and I should have gone to agricultural college, but I was totally useless at sciences. And my parents, to their credit, because um, the, the, my wider family, I don't think would have reacted like this. They never put pressure on me. And I knew from the age of seven that I wasn't going to be a farmer. And it must have been a real disappointment for my parents. But they, they backed me in everything I did. And when I said I wanted to study German at UEA, they couldn't have been more supportive. But doing the course that I did, which was um, German language, German linguistics, teaching English as a foreign language, and there was sort of the odd history module, um, sort of Austria, East Germany, West German history, modern history. Um, and and it, you're right, it did, particularly the linguistic side, which I found incredibly difficult because it's actually more of a science than an art. That did, I think, enable me to think differently about things and to argue in a, in a more convincing way. And, of course, getting involved in politics at university as well. I'm, I'm going to stop talking about Germany in a minute and move on to Italy. However, just before that, I wanted to know whether you've read the book uh, Travellers in the Third Reich. Um, no, I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. So good. And what made me think of it was because Germany used to be have more importance to us as a, as a place of travel. It was almost like... Uh, you know, sort of upper middle class people used to go there almost as the, as a grand tour and right mm. up until the, the point in between the wars and, and probably 
afterwards, but more sort of dwindling as we discovered sort of Italy and France and, and Spain as, as package holiday destinations. People were traveling there and learning German. I remember my granddad, who was not a, a scholar, you know, we're not, like I said, but not a university where we were working class originally, family, he learned German. It, German had this, and German and Germany had this sort of greater importance, I feel, than it has in our lives now. I don't know if people learn it at school. I think the number of people learning German has declined exponentially over the last 20 years, not just in schools, but also universities. Languages aren't as important to us, and they, they ought to be. Um, I remember in 2004, I went on my first demonstration at UEA when they closed the languages department down, and I thought it's outrageous that um, modern-day students didn't have the opportunities that I had, particularly when, I mean, Norwich is about as near as a university to uh, Scandinavia that you can get. And they, they used to have Norwegian courses, Swedish courses, Finnish courses. They don't exist anywhere. And it's a crying shame that, that language teaching in schools has declined in the way that it has. Uh, and we ought to, we can't just trust the fact that everybody else speaks our language. That, that what lies, that's what lies behind it, I think. Um, now, I'm not saying everyone should learn German. But you, you look at the, the coming languages, Arabic, Mandarin, Spanish, th those are the languages which ought to be taught in schools. And they are taught in some schools, but not enough. Yeah, absolutely. And it's when you're young, isn't it, that you need to learn it? Because I don't think I could be asked, to be honest, to go out and learn a new language now. So it's it, absolutely the, the schools and even those school those school trips are so important. Well, now, I'm going to move on. Well, just, just, on just on that, yeah. the optimum age to learn a new language, do you know what it is? I have no idea. Seven. And yet we don't actually start generally until maybe the year before we go to secondary school. Um, so in my view, we ought to be learning um, a, a language properly as soon as we start primary school. Um, but I mean, I don't think that will ever happen. Well, I was seven when I moved to Spain and actually never ended up, I, I don't speak Spanish like a Spanish person because we were in an English community and I moved away when I was 16 and been traveling and living in the UK ever since. But, um, you know, I am a fluent Spanish speaker. Everyone else would think I'm a fluent Spanish speaker, but a people, speaker. Um, so we're going to move on to Italy with my handy list here as my most organized guest ever. Um, you went on a trip around Italy on a Cosmos coach <laughs> trip in 1980, which sounds, I, in, in my head, I'm visualizing it. I'm visualizing the, the fashion, you know, the music, the well, disasters that can come out of that. There were six of us from my um, sixth form uh, class who we decided when we'd done A-levels we all wanted to go on a sort of last hurrah and we spent hours planning a road trip which would start um, in at the hook of Hol at the hook of Holland we'd drive up around Scandinavia uh, down through Germany Switzerland Austria going to Italy up through France um, but my dad had a Woolsey 6 at that point, made by British Leyland, which was rather unreliable. And I thought, well, there aren't going to be many Woolsey dealers around Europe. So in the end, we decided to go on, on a package holiday, which, given that we were all 17 or 18, you think, well, that's a bit of an odd thing to do, given most of the other people were either middle-aged or old. But it was fantastic. It really was. It was a, a 14 days around Italy. Seven days of those were in Sorrento, but we went to Venice, Florence, Rome... Um, and then sort of all along the Amalfi Coast, went to Capri. And it, 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 I just fell in love with Italy. And I, I don't feel that I've been back enough. Um, I haven't been back to Rome since, even though I would still say it was one of the top three places I've ever been to. Um, and it, was, it wasn't actually weird 
being with a lot of older people, um, I think they quite liked the fact that there was a group of youngsters uh, on the holiday as well. And we certainly had a fantastic time. And I think that I've never been on a coach holiday since, partly because I'm six foot two and I I just don't think it would work. Um, But it really did, I suppose... I think that was the first time when I thought I really want to do a lot more travelling. And throughout the 1980s and 1990s, I did. I mean, mainly to the United States, it has to be said. I I first went to the United States in 87 and went back two or three times a year for the next probably 15 years. What you said about coach travel is that it can be a bit uncomfortable, probably more when you're over six foot. But um, overland travel is certainly something that people are are considering more of um, because of the whole issue with with flights and everything and and slow travel and that sort of thing. And I find that you just you do see a lot more when you travel overland. But you have to have the the luxury of time, don't you? And not many of us have the luxury of time. Well, you do. And you can only really stop when everybody else stops. I mean, that you don't make um, on the spur of the moment you might see something out the car window and you can just drive there you can't do that on a coach so I like I like the freedom of having a, a rental car wherever I am rather than necessarily going on something that's organized but on the other hand um my friend Jackie Smith who I do the for the many podcast with she went on a two-week trip to or was it 10 days to India earlier this year just before lockdown and that was all organized literally every minute of the day was organized and she said she thought she might not like that but I think she absolutely loved it in the end sometimes it's nice for people to do all the thinking for you india can be hard work you know and it's quite nice for someone to take a bit a bit of that off uh the pressure off now you were guarded by the sas in beirut in 1991 (laughs) what's that about well i was running a, a transport public affairs consultancy and we got a call one day from the department of transport saying um we've got this opportunity to speak at a, pro- a transport privatization conference in beirut but unfortunately there's nobody available in the department we wondered if you might like to go and i thought to myself and bear in mind this was only about 2 months after john mccarthy had been released as a hostage um, I thought, oh, I wonder why there's no one available in the Department of Transport to go. But there, there's always been a bit of a daredevil about me. And I thought, if I don't do this, I may well regret it. It'll be such an opportunity to see something new. So, I mean, this is, I, I could speak for the rest of the podcast about this trip, but I'll cut it short. So, got a first class flight on Middle Eastern Airlines, arrive at Beirut Airport. The, the, the air, aircraft is surrounded by gun toting Lebanese soldiers. And I had been told by the Foreign Office that I must only um, meet their representatives at the airport. I was not to talk to anyone else. Anyway, I, I go to the to get off the plane and there's steps down to the um, to the tarmac and um, a, a huge black Mercedes draws up. And so I get down to the bottom. He says, Mr. Dale? I said, yes. He said, you'll come with me. I said, no, no, no. I've got, I've got, I've got to wait for someone from the British Foreign Office. Mr. Dale, you'll come with me. So that was um, a bit frightening. So they they took me to this shack to do all of the paperwork to let me into the country. Uh, We went into the airport terminal and I sat down thinking, well, what happens now? And eventually um, about seven British soldiers turn up in in full khaki gear um, and they said, right, uh, we're taking you to your hotel. So off we go in um, armed Land Rovers, um, an advanced one and then me and the one behind. Two of them have machine guns pointing out of the doors and they say, right, we're just going through the most dangerous bit now where all the kidnaps occur. 
thinking, okay, right. <laughs> so we get to the hotel and um, they say, right, do you want to go and change? And I said, what for? Well, you're guest of honour at the British Embassy tonight. And bear in mind, at that point, I was, what, 28 years old? I said, guest of honour, what for? Oh, well, the ambassador's having a reception for you because you're the first person to visit Lebanon since John McCarthy was released. No, seriously. And I was thinking, oh, my God. And I had no sort of posh clothes, really. Anyway, so they we went, then went on a trip on a, um, with these two Land Rovers through the centre of Beirut. And I did think it might not be a particularly good idea to have the Union Jack flying on a little flag on the bonnet of one of the Land Rovers, but there we go. Um, so we saw all of the ruins, and, and Beirut was literally a ruin at that point. And we get to the embassy... And um, there's a sort of chicane, so they couldn't, so people couldn't go and bomb it. And I walk in the door, and the ambassador comes to greet me, and says, "Right, would you like a drink?" And then we'll sit down to dinner. And everyone's really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. And oh, I was thinking, no. "What? <laughs> what do I have to say?" So I had to make a completely. I can't remember what I spoke about, but I had to make an off-the-cuff speech. So then I, I went and spoke at this privatization conference the next day, which I then learned was broadcast all over the Middle East. Um, and the next day I had free and some one of the guys organising the conference said, would you like to go on a trip um, on the outskirts of Beirut, go through the Bekar Valley? And of course I'd been told not to go anywhere without the SAS. So of course I said, yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> so he got taken by this trip and he took me to meet his family, um, spent most of the day doing that. And then the next day, I think I had half a day free before I came back and I thought, well, I, I need to get some sort of souvenirs. So I said to the driver who only spoke French, um, can we go into the centre of Beirut so I can buy a few things? So there was I walking down downtown Beirut in my three-piece suit, sticking out like a sore thumb. And I did think, I'm not sure this was the wisest thing to do. But anyway, I got out alive and it was a fantastic experience. I love that. When you go away, it's like, you know you're in for a good holiday when they tell you don't go anywhere without the SAS. Yeah, quite. (laughs) I had Dom Jolly on the podcast a few months ago, and he has some incredible stories about growing up in Beirut. And John McCarthy stayed at his family house the night before he disappeared. Really? Yeah, he's got. You should speak to him about it. He's got some really. Oh, I will because I know he listens to my program, so I'll have him on. Oh, good. I was going to say he'd be listening, but actually, we're not on your program. On my program, I'm very confu- <laughs> confused as to where I am right now, and I'm meant to be running this show. But uh, he was. He also used to take back souvenirs as uh, shrapnel as souvenirs to his boarding school in Oxford. So, yeah. did you actually find a souvenir in the centre of Beirut at that point? I did buy a few little trinkets, but I can't remember what what they were. I'd love to get hold of that recording of your speech. It must be available somewhere. (laughs) So talking of conflict, um, you were in, well, the the end of conflict, I guess. You were in Budapest as the Berlin Wall came down. Yeah, I've got an American friend, uh, Mark Meloche, who I met. He came when I worked in the House of Commons in the mid-1980s. He was an intern. And, I mean, we've remained friends ever since. And he came over, this would have been, I think, at the probably March 1990 and uh, it could be 91 no I think it uh, anyway around then and um, we went on a road trip I had a VW Scirocco at the time and we ended up in Vienna which I expected to really like Vienna but in so the end of winter beginning of spring Vienna is always a bit dirty and um, so we didn't stay there as long as uh, we thought we would so we were looking at the map thinking well where should we go next and I said well what about Let's go to the Hungarian border and see what that's like. So we drove to the Hungarian border 
I then talked to some of the Austrian border guards and I said, well, presumably we're not allowed to go through. And he said, oh, yes, you absolutely can. And then I thought, well, let's go for two hours because I didn't have, my car wasn't insured to drive in Hungary. Um, but of course, two hours then became two days. So we, instead of just going over the border to say that we've been to Hungary, uh, we drove to Budapest, which um, I, it was really in the, the the Western influence was starting. The first McDonald's was being built while we were there. So I'm really glad that I went when it hadn't become Westernised. And it was the most amazing place. It really, I mean, anybody that wants a good city break in uh, Central Europe, go to Budapest. Um, it, it's The architecture is fantastic. Uh, the people, well, certainly at that point, were fantastic, and I'm sure they still are. And the food was to die for. Um, so we spent a couple of days there, then drove back to the Austrian border, and we stopped before we got there. Um, we were going to spend the night there. We couldn't find a hotel, and we were just sitting in our car looking at a map. And this woman came over and said, oh, are you looking for somewhere to stay? And we said, yeah. She said, well, my grandmother's got a room. Do you, would you like to have a look? So she walked us up to her grandmother's house, sort of arm in arm, which I did think was a little bit weird, but I didn't think anything of it. Um, she showed us the room, so we said, yeah, that's fine. So I said, we'll, we'll go and get our things and we're just going to have a meal at the hotel down there. Um, so she said, oh, I'll come with you. And again, I thought, that's a little bit odd. So we sat down and started chatting away. And then Mark said, oh, I'm just going to pop to the loo. Anyway, he didn't come back. So eventually I said to her, I'd better find out what's happened to Mark. So I went to look for him in the loo and he was just standing there and he goes, she's a goddamn whore. I thought, oh my God. And I thought, is she? Anyway, he said, we've got to get out of here. So we literally ran to the car got in the car, I did a sort of Starsky and Hutch skid turn. And as we did, she ran out of the hotel screaming at us. And we sort of left. And we, we thought, I mean, in a sense, I think that it was nervous laughter, but we were roaring with laughter. And then we found somewhere else to have something to eat in the next town. And then I suddenly thought, what if she goes to the police and say we raped her or something? And Mark said, oh, don't be so stupid. Of course, she's not going to do that. And about two minutes later, he said, yeah, what she did? I said, I think we need to get into Austria. So we we made it to the Austrian border and got through the border control. And I remember getting out of my car and kissing the ground. And I'm sure we were being completely overdramatic. But um, it, that was uh, quite an experience. I'm sh I thought you were going to say in about two minutes later, a police car no. pulled up. <laughs> I had probably one of the, I went to Budapest in 1995, actually, and it still felt very new after, you know, the, the changes and everything. There it was still bullet holes in the walls. And obviously, they're probably still there now because they, they stay there. But um, I was going to, I was at Brighton University at the time at the art college. And we went on a, um, you know, sort of art tour by coach as well to, days and days such a long way away isn't it um and I had one of the most politically wonderful moments of my life there I wasn't really into politics at the time I developed that later but we met these group of art students these really like handsome men with like shaggy hair and thin and those sort of great cheekbones that they have in, in Hungary and these big eyes and they took us to this cafe which was everything was covered in lace and there was someone serving uh, playing the piano in the corner and they started having all these great political debates which I couldn't really keep up with but I nodded along and, and got very drunk and then afterwards they took us to this um, jazz club I want to call it a jazz club it's a bar but they were playing avant-garde jazz and 
it was the most hideous music I have ever heard in my <laughs> life. They were just playing jazz instruments at different times, you know, and everything, nothing was, and everyone's sitting there like stroking their chin and I'm looking around thinking, oh my God, but it was actually very, very exciting. You know, it felt like you were part of, it almost felt like you were part of the resistance, you know, although obviously there was nothing to resist by that point, but it was just really um, a, a very sort of, uh, a, a very evocative um, moment, you know, very, but the, the music was absolutely shit. <laughs> Sounds say. like a fast show <laughs> sketch. <laughs> yeah, it was, absolutely. It was something, it was something out of a, out of a sketch, it was. Right, what have I got on my list now? Um, I wish so, I hadn't written a list now. No, I love your list. No, because we never do this. So it's I love to, you know, let's mix up the format. It's really good. And also, you know, it means that I get your best stories. So you were in Azerbaijan and Armenia in 2010. Both well, countries I've never been to, actually. Well, I went to Armenia, um, It was, a, I think it was 2008. And then um, Azerbaijan was actually, which was only a couple of years ago, I think. Um, but of course, those are two countries that literally hate each other's guts. And if you've been, if you have an Armenian stamp in your passport, you don't get to go to Azerbaijan. It's that bad. Um, Armenia was fantastic. I got invited to go there by the John Smith Institute. They were doing a lot of work on enhancing democracy, so I had to go and do some talks. And I, I was very, I'd become quite well known as a blogger in the um, sort of twenty in the first ten years of the, of the century. Um, so uh, I, I really went to talk to them about media blogging. Um, freedom of speech, all that sort of thing. It was a really brilliant experience, I have to say. And then Azerbaijan, I got invited to chair a conference by the... Um, I can't even remember what they called that now. It's, it's basically a conservative grouping in the European Parliament. And they'd got loads of MEPs and politicians... And there were a lot of British people there as well. And I'd never been to Azerbaijan, so I thought, well, why not? And it was the most fascinating country, the cleanest country I think I've ever seen, um, which you, in that part of the world you don't expect everything to be pristine, but it absolutely was the most fantastic hotel, I think, um, well, almost the best hotel I've ever stayed in, a massive, massive room. And um, and I had to chair this conference for, for two days, which was very easy to do. Um, and then they sort of put, put on lots of entertainment in the evening. One thing I did notice, though, there were policemen on virtually every street corner. I mean, it was really... I mean, I hesitate to call it a police state, but should we say... Um, there wasn't a lot of flexibility, I think, on the part of the state regarding uh, their people. But it, yeah, it was it was a great experience. It's probably why it's so clean when you go somewhere like Singapore, you know, which has that police yeah. state esque, um, yeah. you know, situation, and it's absolutely spotless. But it also made me think of Cuba, where you have the police there, but the police and the tourist police are there to kind of stop you from mingling with the locals and answering too many questions. Was, yeah, you see, that's was what there I, that sort of thing? I would hate that. Um, I mean, even in in Russia, which was the most policed visit I think I've ever been on, you could still talk to people um, and get a, a bit of an idea of their lives. Um, I, I, what's the point of going to a country if you can't mix with the local people? Yeah, I, I don't know what Cuba's like. I went um, when Fidel was still, you know, in alive and in charge, and um, I, I wanted to have political conversations with people, but they were very—they would have them, but they were very, you know, sort of glancing around yeah. furtively and, and whispering, which is interesting in itself. You know, I have no idea what it's like now. I'd love to go back. Actually, it's a beautiful place. Um, I'm coming to the end of my list—the list that you're hating now. <laughs> I'm enjoying the list. I really am. Um, the uh, the gay hotel on the Florida Keys. Now that sounds. <laughs> like my sort of party <laughs> absolutely sounds like my sort of thing 
Well, um, I've been to Florida quite a few times, but I've never been to the Florida Keys. So I drove down from Miami and um, found this hotel. I can't remember what it was called. Um, and it turned out to be a gay hotel. Now, I'd never stayed in a gay hotel before, um, but I thought, oh, this could be fun. <laughs> so, um, and it was one of those places, now how can I put this, where um, at night, not all of the doors were shut. <laughs> and you would sort of um, find people, um, shall we say, entering your room to check you out <laughs> to see if they wanted to go any further. <laughs> And it was, um, and in the swimming pool area, I mean, that was sort of basically anything goes. I mean, you'd sort of, you'd be on your sun lounger, um, having a snooze, and you'd open your eye, and shall we say you you got an eyeful. Um, So it was one of those type of hotels, which I had never experienced before. But um, shall we say, um, I'm not going to tell you everything that happened. (laughs) It sounds... It sounds good. And it sounds like if I haven't experienced one of those before, it's a good sort of place to experience once. We've got, I spent a lot of time in Brighton and I'm moving back there at the end of the summer. And there are rumouredly hotels like that. But whenever I go out with like my gay friends to clubs and everything, you know, there's, you, you're there for a certain amount of time. And then and after a while, it's like, you know, you're, it's time for you to go now. <laughs> we, we're going on, you know, where the real party starts. Have you ever, as a gay man, have you ever had any difficulties in in with travel and you know any prejudices when you've been because there are countries where you know you, you can't really go or can't go freely no not at all uh, I mean it's not something I mean I don't think if I walk down a street I'm not sure that anyone would think oh he's gay um I, I, I don't sort of fit into any of the particular stereotypes I don't think um and I'm trying to think I can't think of anywhere that I've been no you're that's... right because my, all my gay friends again this is a Brighton thing but all my gay friends are left-leaning vegetarian so you know when I was only living in Brighton I thought they all went hand in hand I couldn't believe when I got out you know into other places that were like you know right leaning <laughs> gay men who <laughs> yeah, ate meat you know because like, you, yeah. you know people on the right can be gay people on the I right know, it's not, it's can bad. be it's, vegans it's I mean why they would be I don't know but there we are <laughs> so those things always went hand in hand with me um and uh, lastly on the list of joy you're absolutely rubbish in airports apparently the airport experience is going to change dramatically now i'm going to be on a plane soon in fact by the time this is out i'll probably have had my airport experience so i can report back um but yeah what's what's your haplessness in airports about i'm just terrible i have to get there hours before i need to just to make sure that i do get there because i'm always afraid that i'm not going to get there um once in miami airport uh, i lost my boarding pass got a replacement and then lost that as well um in maine i was getting a connection to florida and i was in the uh lounge for the particular airline and missed the connection so i had to stay at maine airport for another day before i could then fly down the next day i'm just hopeless in an airport i have to keep checking um the the boards to make sure that i'm not late to get to the gate as soon as the gate opens i'm there so nothing bad can happen once i get to the gate um i I, I quite like airports, bizarrely. I don't know why. So if I go to America, um, I will probably get to Heathrow five hours before the flight goes. Um, just to, five just to make, hours? Yep, just to make sure that I'm there. And have you ever missed a flight? I've never missed a flight to America. I, I think the only one I missed was that one within America. 
I've I've missed them before, and I, I'm finding as I get older, I'm a little bit more less gung ho, and I'm a little bit nervous. But I'm flying with two very young children at the moment, and that oh, you know, sort of that's like yeah. throwing, that's and, like an assault call. And I know? would be the one sat next to you on the plane. I, <laughs> I, I attract I attract babies on planes like bees to a honeypot. Um, and I, I'm not very. I, my nieces used to call me Uncle Herod, so you can see how good I am with children. <laughs> Uncle Herod, I love it. Before I ask you my last question, have you, is there anything else I've missed? Any standout stories? You seem to go to go to the states a lot. What's up with I America? do. I, I just love America. Washington is sort of my my ancestral home in a way. It's got everything a capital city can give me. And as I say, I used to go two or three times a year. Um, for the last ten years since I've been doing LBC, I've, I've been out there a couple of times to do like. Trump's inauguration, Obama's um, second election. But most of my friends have moved out of Washington now, and Washington is not what it used to be. A lot of the places that I used to go are no longer there, which is always a disappointment when I go back. Um, And I haven't been there for nearly four years now, so uh, I don't know when I'll go back. The the only other one that I'd particularly mention is uh, the only African country I've ever been to is Rwanda. And I went there. Do you remember David Cameron took a load of Conservatives to do social action projects there in 2007? Don't specifically remember (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I went to cover that as a, as a journalist. And so we got put up in the most marvellous hotel in Kigali, literally one of the best I've ever stayed in. Well, they all had to stay in these sort of shacks. We got taken all around to all those sort of genocide memorials. It was the most amazing experience. So I remember get, taking my camera woman, Alice, out to a village. We just got, got a car and drove out. When we got out of the car, we were literally surrounded by all of these little children and their parents and it was as if they'd never seen a white person before and that was the only time even I mean they were kind of just fascinated by us but it's the only time in my life where I've kind of felt a real fish out of water and I felt like I remember when I was a Tory candidate in 2004 being in Cromer on the North Norfolk coast and everyone was staring at this black man walking down the high street because they'd never seen one before or oh not not, God, in, not, not in chroma well it, yeah, it was rarely, sh- yeah. it was shocking in a, in a sense but they weren't being racist it was just something different and if you see something different you stare and that's what was happening in this little village in the middle of rwanda and um it, it was it really was uh, we were only there about five days but it was somewhere i thought i really want to come back here for a much longer time I had a similar experience with Ethiopia recently, and it, but I don't want to lump African countries. You know, Africa is a continent rather than you know a country, as everyone says when people go, "Oh, have you been to Africa?" But you know, a lot of those African countries that you you don't normally go to on a holiday, if you get an opportunity to go there, and I was in Ethiopia for work recently. It's it's just you know it was just stunning and so green you know you have these images of Ethiopia as you know the the drought and which actually was more of a political famine rather than a drought sorry Mm. it's just so green and and beautiful and wonderful and and nowhere I would have thought of you know going for a couple of weeks but yeah really lovely I was I was I I can't even tell this story and I'm so embarrassed you know you're talking about the people that were um the man in the black man being stared at in in Norfolk on I did something similar (laughs) to someone on the Brexit night vote, and I am very much a Ramona, I will admit it. Um, when the the Brexit vote happened, and it and it turned out we 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 chose some people chose to leave the EU. I was in the centre of London in Soho that night, getting very drunk with my friends and crying about the whole affair. And I mean, I'm I'm from a mixed race family as well, so don't ask me why we did this, but. 
out of nowhere came this couple, a black man and a white woman, and they looked really trendy and like super cool and everything. And it's almost like the crowd parted to let them through. And I remember like, I think I went up to them and said something. I was so <laughs> drunk. I think I said something like, well done, or this is what it is, what it should be about in my shocked European, you know, state. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like I was so othering them. And, you know, it's just, it was just awful and I'm so embarrassed even to admit it like I said I'm you know from a mixed race family myself this is not something new but I was almost like those people in Norfolk staring at this this black guy and his, his you, white you, you didn't sort of slur in your drunken state I bloody love you you're my best mates I think that is exactly <laughs> what happened and I'm so ashamed if they're out there if they happen to be listening oh yeah I'm so ashamed right I'm going to ask you my last question after that embarrassing admittance admittance is that the right word yeah, admission. Admission, yeah. Admittance is something completely different, isn't it? Yeah. A lockdown has melted my brain a little bit. So I will ask you my last question. And my last question is always about music, because I think that music and travel often go very, very much hand in hand. And if you had to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel, it doesn't have to be a good memory. It just has to be a, a, a story. What would that song be and why? This is you're, you're going to throw up when I say this. <laughs> I like it. My favourite song of all time is by Cliff Richard, and it's called "Miss You Nights," and it's the most balletic ballad you've ever heard. It's basically just him singing with piano music, and it it didn't. It's one of his most famous songs, but it didn't actually do very well in the charts. And I can rem- the reason I've chosen that is because I've been to Australia a couple of times and I went to stay on the Northern Territory's coast about 300 miles from Darwin, literally in the middle of nowhere. It's crocodile country, but there's this little enclave of houses that presumably quite rich people own. And um, I can just remember sitting on the veranda of this house every night thinking this is the most special place that I've ever been to Um, because it was just hundreds of miles from anywhere. Dirt tracks you had to drive to get to it. There were no roads. Um, And it was just a place where you could really get away from it all. Um, You couldn't get Twitter. You couldn't get any internet. um, There's hardly a phone signal either. And it was just bliss. And I just remember uh, playing that song on my iPod at that point. Um, And, yeah, it was just perfect. You know, I'm not going to throw up at all. I I think that's one of the most beautiful songs. And I'd forgotten that song, actually, because I I don't often listen to Cliff Richard. Anybody listening, just because it's Cliff Richard, don't let that put you off. Go and look at it on YouTube. And if you don't, it is, to me, the perfect ballad. And I do like a piano-based ballad. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Tell us again the name and where we can find... Well, I know where we can find the music because <laughs> everyone knows where they, where to find books these days. But what is the... Uh, the well, it's called book? Why Can't We All Just Get Along? Shout Less, Listen More. Um, it's twelve ninety nine in hardback and it's out on the 6th of August. And a lot of people like audiobooks nowadays and it is available as an audiobook. I read it myself um, and I've got quite a soporific voice. So if you find it hard to sleep, buy the audiobook and just listen to my dulcet tones and you'll go to sleep. I'm sure it'd be too thrilling to go to <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Coming up, we have some brilliant guests for you, including Laura Hamilton from A Place in the Sun, Lloyd Grossman and his new book about Rome, the wonderful poet Lem Cisse, and multi-million selling author Justin Somper. See you soon. Listener.